There's a couple by the name of Neil and Carol Anderson. And uh, many years ago, uh, they felt called to move, to move to Papua New Guinea and be missionaries and tell people about Jesus. And so they moved to Papua New Guinea and decided to settle with this, uh, this, this group of people called the uh, Infalopa, uh, F-O-L-O-P-A, Falopa. And they get there, and they're kind of meeting the people, and they realize, like, these this Philopian people, they have, uh, they have their own language, but they didn't have a written language. And so the Andersons get there, and the first thing they do is say, hey, we're going to help these people. We're gonna, uh, and so they work, with, they work with them. They're trying to figure it out, and they put together an alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G in this language. And then they take the alphabet, and they begin to make words, and eventually they came out with a dictionary for this uh, group of people, which is phenomenal. And the Andersons are like, all right, what's next? We gave them this. Now we'll start translating the New Testament. And they're translating the New Testament into these people's language. And there came a problem when they got to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now this is an important statement. Um, This is Jesus saying, hey, I'm the source of life. You want abundant life. You want eternal life. It's in me. The problem was, uh, the people in Philippa, they, they didn't eat bread. Their, their main staple of their diet was sweet potatoes. And they're like, well, we can't, they're not going to understand this. So they translated that verse. They said, Jesus said, I am the sweet potato of life. It works. But there's some people from the homeland that were incensed. They thought, you have totally uh, corrupted God's word. Right? Like, like they said, listen, the King James Version, it was good enough for Jesus. It should be good enough for this Philopian people. Like, you can't do that. Was it wrong for them to translate that verse? I am the sweet potato of life. Now, this was the Andersons trying to contextualize the message. Trying to take the same message with the same meaning that Jesus is a source of eternal and abundant life and trying to communicate it in a way to that, that this community could understand it. Could say, man, I, I grasp this. I can, I can believe in that. In fact, this is what missionaries do. Missionaries go to, to different places and they study the culture. They study the people. They, they discover what's important to them and they contextualize the gospel in a way that the people can understand the gospel, understand what Jesus has done for them. And I'll tell you, I love reading stories like the Andersons. I love reading stories like this because when I look at where we are as a country, like we're an increasingly secular culture. I mean, it's been said for a while, like, like, we're post, like our country is just it's moving more and more post-Christian. And so I love hearing these people that contextualize the gospel because it gives insight for us on how do we take this message that we love and that we hold as, as Christians. Jesus died for us and he rose from the grave and how do we take it and communicate it in a way that people today can embrace? In fact, I remember uh, 20 years ago, uh, 20 some years ago, I was a young Christian and I was just blown away by, by the gospel. I mean, here I was like this, this, this boy that was trying to be good enough, trying to show, hey, look, I'm good. I'm, I'm good enough. And if I'm being honest, like deep down, I knew I wasn't. I wasn't good enough. But then someone told me about this Jesus. And if I believed in him and had a relationship with him, uh, that he chose me, that I was called and chosen by, by God of the universe, that I was beloved by him. 
that I was kept by him, not because I was good and followed all the rules, but I was kept because of what Jesus had done for me. And I tell you what, I was blown away at how great the gospel was. It was life-changing. And I remember 20 years ago, I was like, man, I can't wait to figure out how I can share this message with other people. And so we went to, my wife and I, we went to this uh, traditional old-fashioned church. And I remember going to, to Pastor Price. Now, Pastor Price, uh, he, was, he, he was old, and old is generous. Like, I think he, his first vehicle was a dinosaur. He just rode dinosaurs around. He was old. And, uh, but I love Pastor Price. Pastor Price was a guy that I had a lot of respect for. He, uh, he'd loved his wife for a long time. He'd loved the church, served God for such a long time. And I remember saying, hey, Pastor Price, like, man, the gospel has been so life-changing to me. How do I share this with other people? Pastor Price says, I know how to do that. He said, here's what you do. We're going to go walk around the streets. We're going to knock on doors. And when someone answers the door, we're going to say, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That was the way he talked. Well, that wasn't exactly the way he talked. He sounded like that. He's like, let me tell you. He's like, hey, you take your Bible and you say, let me show you how the Bible tells that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Now, (laughs) uh, my story, I was horrible at doing that. I wasn't good at knocking on doors for two reasons. Number one, like I grew up as a Mormon. When I became a Christian, I thought I got saved from having to knock on doors, right? I was like, no, we did this. I don't want to do that anymore. Fortunately, we didn't have to ride a bike around doing that. But I mean, that was like, oh man, I don't want to do this. And secondly, like I think about me, like, I am not a fan of people just knocking on my door for randomly. Like, like I'm not, man, it's annoying to me. So why am I going to go do that to other people that might find it annoying as well? So I remember we got done one day knocking on the doors and uh, Pastor Price was like, oh, let me buy you a coffee. And I'm like, all right, let's go get a coffee. And we go to McDonald's because that's where old people get coffee at, McDonald's. If you didn't know, now you do. So we're at McDonald's and, and I'm like, man, uh, this, is, uh, this was hard. And Pastor Price said, yeah, it used to be easier. The problem was, Pastor Price grew up in a different time. Again, he was old. And when he was younger, when he was first learning to do this, man, in that that culture, the Bible was generally accepted as as truth. People respected the Bible. Uh, Jesus, uh, most people believed in God, and Jesus was someone to be respected. But fast forward 150 years, I don't know however long it was, to our current day and age, man, culture shifted. Jesus is known little more as a swear word, let alone as Lord and Savior. Our culture believes that truth is relevant. You believe what you want to believe, and so the Bible is not the accepted ultimate authority. Times have changed. And as Christians, as the church, again, we've got this mission. God has called us to make disciples of all nations. God has called us to take the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and communicate it to other people so they can place their faith and believe in him. And the question is, how do we do that? Again, with this increasingly secular culture, post-Christian culture that has little concern for God, doesn't regard the Bible as as more than just a, a fable. How do we tell people about Jesus? Do we knock on doors and say, let me tell you about my Lord and Savior? Do we stand on street corners with signs that say, You're going to go to hell unless you repent? Like, how do we communicate the gospel today in our day and age? And this is where we need to learn from people like the Andersons. who went to Papua New Guinea. We need to learn from them how we can study the culture, understand the questions 
and the needs and concerns of the people in our day and age and contextualize the gospel or share the gospel in a way that they can understand uh, the gospel and believe it in their own heart. We have been in the book of Acts for the majority of this year, having this conversation as a church on, on, on how the early church, it wasn't just an institution. It wasn't just a place that you came for religious services and you felt really good and you went back on your life and carried on as normal. No, the early church was a movement that literally impacted and touched everything around it. I mean, culture was impacted because the church wasn't just an institution, it was a movement. Hey, we're going to change and have an impact on everything around us. And as a church, Restoration Church, we're kind of like a conversation of how do we become a movement like them? How do we impact our city? How do we impact our schools? How do we impact the businesses in Yakima? How do we make a difference in our community? Again, thank you so much, Jim, for preaching last week. He started Acts chapter 17 for us. And at the end of the passage that Jim had, Paul was being persecuted. There's some persecution rising up. And so the people said, Paul, we want to take you out of Berea. And they sent him 200 miles away to a city called Athens. Now, Athens, you may be familiar with. Uh, Athens was where the Olympics started. How cool is that, right? Athens was kind of the, the uh, intellectual center of the world. The great thinkers uh, of the ancient world, uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they all were in Athens. You might think about like Oxford and Yale and Harvard. Like this would have been the place where all the intellectuals gathered together and they talked about ideas and they debated and they celebrated new ideas trying to figure out philosophy and life. Well, in Acts chapter 17, that's where Paul is. And he is going, uh, this is why I think this passage is so relevant to us today because Paul is going to show us how we have some gospel conversations how we have gospel conversations to contextualize the gospel, to take God's message of redemption, of Jesus on the cross, and communicate it in a way that meets whatever culture and meets their, their, their questions, their needs, their, their, their concerns, and penetrates their worldview so it would change their heart. I think one of the things I wanted to do this morning was just uh, give us a definition for contextualize. Uh, to contextualize the gospel is how we connect the gospel to culture by connecting the gospel to people's needs, concerns, and questions. We're going to talk a lot today about contextualizing the gospel. This is what it means. We're trying to take the message and connect it to people's needs, concerns uh, of the culture and of individual people around us. That's where we're going. Starts out in verse 16, Paul, again, he's Athens. Uh, he's in Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, his, his co-partners, his, his, his friends, his team. He's waiting for them to meet him in Athens. And so he's there, and it says he explores the city. In verse 16, it says, the spirit his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, Athens uh, is said to have about 10,000 people living in the city. And they had 10,000 people, and they're believed to have 30,000 different idols and shrines and statues and temples for false gods that people could go and worship to. If you could imagine walking down the streets of Athens, the, the, the streets were lined with these, these deities framed through the architectural magnificence of things like the Pantheon and the Acropolis. Again, just thinking back, like if you know anything about a Roman culture, uh, they had all sorts of different gods for all different, different parts of their life, right? So the, the god of Artemis. Anybody recognize the name Artemis, the god of Artemis? She was a, a goddess of prosperity and money. 
So if you wanted money, you would go find the, the idol or the, 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 the temple for Artemis, and you'd, you'd worship there, hoping that she would give you money and wealth and, and that sort of thing. There was a goddess named Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. So if you wanted to be smart, you'd go worship at her temple. Hey, I'll go worship you, I'll give you my offering, and you'll make me smart. There was the goddess of Nike that we might call Nike. This was the goddess uh, who was concerned with victory. This goddess would have been worshipped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan. It would have made you run faster and jump higher and soar over the enemies to dunk basketballs. This was the goddess uh, called Nike. <laughs> there was the goddess Aphrodite. This is the goddess of sex and beauty and fertility. And then, actually, there's another god, another goddess. Her name was uh, Cloachina. And literally, this, this is true. She was the goddess of the sewer system. Cloachina. Like, <laughs> uh, it makes me wonder, like, why would you worship that goddess? I can, imagine, I can imagine how you give an offering to that goddess, but, like, why would you worship out of all the gods? You worship Cloachina? Again, so they had all of these gods with all these altars. And these altars, these gods, they needed human offerings to survive. And so you wanted what the God could offer, so you go worship them, and they needed you to, 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 their, they needed you to bring their offerings so that they could survive. And here's Paul walking through the city, seeing all these idols, and the text said that his spirit was provoked. This word provoked, it means that he was sad. He was distressed. He was compelled not just to judge them as being sinful, but he was compelled to action. He wanted to do something about it. Why? Because he loved the people. He saw all these idols representing false hope. People giving their lives to things that aren't going to solve the problems in the world and in their life. And his heart's broken because they're missing out on the true hope. And he's compelled to do something. In fact, Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians that it's the love of Christ that compels us. He looks at these people. He, he's like, man, they're, they're missing out on the love of God, on freedom, on purpose, on peace. He's compelled to do something about it. Compelled to go have a gospel conversation. It says in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout people. And not only that, he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. On Sundays, he goes to the synagogues. He's talking to the Jews. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you the rest of the story about Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a son of God. And then he died and he rose from the grave. And he's like, listen, listen, listen. Jesus is a Messiah. The Messiah wasn't just a political savior who was going to fix the problems in this world. No, Jesus is a Messiah who's come to fix what's gone wrong in our hearts. Who's come not just for this world, but for eternity. So he's in the synagogues. He's trying to tell the people about Jesus. And not only that, the rest of the week, he spends his time in the marketplace. He's in the streets. He's in the coffee shops. He's in the business places trying to engage people with where they are looking for common ground. Man, I'm going to find a way to start a conversation about Jesus with you. You know, it's funny. In churches, uh, sometimes we deal with this where are we, uh, are we uh, come and see church or go and tell church? Are we attractional or are we missional? I think Paul is like, it's a both and. 
They say, hey, we're going to come to church. We're going to preach the gospel. We want to build services where people can come and hear about Jesus. But guess what? We're also going to go and tell. It's both and. It says in verse 18, he's starting some Jesus conversations. And here's a response. It says, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they conversed with him. These philosophers, Falafel, uh, these philos- <laughs> I can't even say it. these people, they represent the, the, the dominant uh, culture of the time. The Epicureans, uh, they believe that, that God wasn't necessarily concerned with this world. And so their goal was pleasure. They're going to seek all sorts of pleasure in fine foods, fine drink, fine experiences. They were hedonistic. It was all about the experience and going and getting the most this world had to offer. That's the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics, they're the opposite. Uh, they lived a life that wasn't moved by, by pain. They were trying not to be seduced by pleasure. They were detached. Their goal was just, hey, let's be people who endure life without much emotion either way. Both of these groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they have this functional philosophy on how you live. Hey, this is a functional philosophy but neither one of them had an understanding of who God was. They couldn't understand why would Jesus come to the earth. And so Paul is having these conversations, these gospel conversations, and he comes with mixed results. Verse 18, some of them said, what does this babbler say? This was an insult. Uh, this was saying, hey, you are a, a, a second-class mind. You can't think of your own things. You're just spewing out things from other people have said. Others, verse 18, uh, says he seems to be preaching about foreign deities because he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the uh, Areopagus, which is translated Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is. You bring this strange thing to our ears. We wish to know what these things mean. Jesus is, or Paul is having these conversations about Jesus and the people are intrigued. They're kind of like, man, we don't know what you're talking about. We want to know more. We're, we're intrigued. We're interested. We want to have you tell us more. And again, I think about, I think about this picture. Like, like, here's Paul. He's brought before all the people now. He has this opportunity to have this gospel conversation. And what's he going to do? Stands up in front of everybody and says, let me tell you about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're going to die if you don't, go to, if you don't repent and turn to Jesus. That's not what he does. He loves the people. He desires them for, for them to know Jesus as their Savior. So he contextualizes the gospel. And this is going to be a, a very simple way, framework for us to say, how do we have gospel conversations? How do we contextualize the gospel? Now, we can just look at what Paul did and say there's a couple things we can learn from that. Number one, the first thing we do is we've got to find common ground. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, you men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. Notice how he starts. He doesn't argue. He doesn't accuse them of being sinners and, oh, you guys are worthless. You're worshiping these idols. He starts with almost a compliment. I notice you are very religious. You're seeking after God. That's a good thing. Paul's like, hey, hey I can respect that. I, I'm seeking after God too. You know, one of the things that we often say is you catch more flies with honey rather than vinegar. Rather than coming abrasive, he comes and says, let me find some common ground. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes says this, that God has written eternity 
on every human heart. That inside of us, there's part of us that longs for morality and truth and good and God. And Paul looks at these people that were completely opposite than him. They, have no, they want nothing to do with God. And what does he do? He says, no, I'm going to find some common ground. What does it look like for us to try and find common ground with people that we might think are complete opposites of us? People that not, want nothing to do with the church or want nothing to do with God. This is what it looks like. I think with atheists, you're like, oh, I have nothing in common with an atheist. Well, I would say an atheist, they have a passion for truth. Can't you say, man, I admire that. I have a passion for truth as well. Okay, there's a common ground. You might look at somebody who, uh, non-religious parents, who are helping their children pursue education and trying to be the best people you can, and you're like, hey, hey, parent, you care about the future of your children. You want to help them leave a legacy. Man, I can respect that. I can admire that. I can affirm that. That's my desire too. Now, maybe you're going about it in the wrong way, but I can affirm your desire is good. Think about all the activists in our world, and there's a lot of them, both sides of the aisle just doing whatever they're going to do. You know the activists? You know, you know what I see in the activists? They have a desire to address the brokenness in our world, to have the brokenness healed. Like, can we find common ground in that? I mean, is that what we all want? We want the brokenness to be healed? Now, they're going about it in a wrong way. But rather than, than judge, can't we just try and find a connection point, common ground? Man, I see you're trying to make the world a better place. So am I. We have that in common. I applaud you for that. I respect you for that. So Paul starts out. Paul starts out with finding common ground. The second thing he does is he's going to uh, find a bridge to the gospel. Verse 23, he says, As I passed through your remarkable city, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. This is the just-in-case God, right? They've got thousands of gods, and they're like, well, there might be one other one. So we'll make this altar for this other God just in case there's another one. Paul says, I found this altar, the inscription of the unknown God, and what you worship as unknown, this I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, when we look at Paul through the book of Acts, we notice when he comes into a town and he goes to the synagogue, what does he do? Opens up the Bible. He's like, I'm going to come straight to the Bible. We saw this in Acts chapter 17. He walked in the synagogue, and it says he opened the scriptures and reasoned with them. But here at Mars Hill, Paul doesn't open the Bible. Why not? Because the Athens, the Athenians, they didn't recognize the Bible as being the, the, the uh, authority. They didn't recognize the Bible as being truth. And Paul knows, hey, I still need to communicate the gospel with these people. So what does he do? He tries to find a different way to get their attention to what the Bible says. He needs a bridge. A bridge that connects the gospel to their worldview. A bridge to connect the gospel to their thoughts, their concerns, their questions. And it requires, them, it requires him to have to listen and pay attention to the culture around them. He listens and pays attention and says, hey, you guys have this altar, this unknown God. Guess what? I can use it as a bridge to tell you about that God that you don't know. Here's what it looks like for us. Again, if we're going to contextualize the gospel, we have to be a student of our culture. Pay attention to the things they're talking about. I think about Taylor Swift. I'll, I'll go there. I only bring Taylor Swift up because i got some nieces that they love when I pick on Taylor Swift. Okay, Taylor Swift, she better not ruin Travis Kelsey. Can I just say that? Amen to that? Anybody? 
All right, Taylor Swift has made a career writing about all of how all of her ex-boyfriends have not fulfilled her, right? That's what she writes about. All these ex-boyfriends, okay? Look, here's a bridge. Hey, Taylor, maybe your boyfriends aren't supposed to fulfill you. Maybe there's something bigger and greater than a man that will fulfill you. And guess what? I know who that man is. His name is Jesus Christ. See, it's a bridge. I think about, you think about pleasure. I mean, I mean, we have people that live for pleasure and experiences. You ever notice how those things are never enough? I mean, I think about, I think about again, I'm, I like sports. I like listening to the athletes. And it's fun for me to listen to these athletes that are like, man, I pursued all of this stuff. I had all the money, had all, all, all the uh, relationships. I had, I had, I had uh, Super Bowl rings and all those other things. And I found it didn't fulfill me. Why? Man, because those things never satisfy us. They always leave us longing for more. You know what that is? That's called a bridge. Yeah, because those things can't satisfy you. But I'll tell you what. Can I tell you who can satisfy you? Politics. Listen, we need good laws. We need good politicians. There's wisdom in that. But can politicians ultimately solve what's wrong in our society? No. They can't change the human heart. Who can? Again, these are bridges. This is where you begin to look around. What are the conversations that people are having? What are the questions? What, what, are they, what are they talking about? What are they writing about? What are we seeing on TV? These are things that we begin to look for and say, what are the, the, the needs and the concerns of these people? And how do I contextualize the gospel? How do I find that as a bridge to say, let me tell you how God satisfies that need? Paul says, hey, I see you guys. You've got that unknown God. It's important to you. And that's my bridge to tell you about the one true God. Listen, let me ask you this. Do you know what the culture around you is asking? Do you know what our needs are? Their questions, their concerns? Where we have to be students to listen to people and hear where they're at. Third thing he does in this gospel conversation is he's going to contrast biblical truth with their faulty worldview. Verse 24, this is what he says. He says, the God, the real God, he made the world and everything in it. And being Lord over heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he's needed anything, since he himself is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's like, hey, your idols, like they need you. They need your offerings to survive. But he says this, this unknown God, this one true God, and he's greater than that. He's the creator of all things. He's a creator. And listen, if God is a creator, does it make sense? Listen, if God is a creator, does it make sense that he needs us to build him a house to live in? Like if he's a creator of all things and, and gives everything to us, does it make sense that he needs us to, to serve him? I was like, no, guys, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. He's greater than that. I mean, I think this is why even they have this altar to this unknown God, because I think the people realize, man, there's got to be something greater than the goddess of the sewer system, right? There's got to be something greater than, than, than Michael Jordan and Nike. There's got to be something greater than that. Again, this is where eternity is written on every human heart. Verse 26, again, talking about God, he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, 
that having determined times and periods and boundaries and dwelling place, that they would seek him and perhaps feel their way to him and find him. This is where he's, he, he's trying to answer the, the, the uh, uh, Epicureans and Stoics' attitude. Listen, God is not removed from life. No, God is sovereign. God is involved in our lives. He has, has structured our lives. He has structured times and places in which we live. He has created us special so that we can know him. And he is seeking a relationship with you. Verse 27. He says, he actually is not far from each of us. For, listen to this, for in him we live and move and have our being. See that quote? Where is Paul quoting from? It's got to be the prophet Isaiah. No, not Isaiah. It's got to be the prophet Jeremiah. No, no, actually, it's probably like nobody understands Deuteronomy. That's a quote from Deuteronomy, right? Actually, he's not quoting Bible at all. This was a poem written by uh, a guy in 600 BC, a poem written to Zeus. Paul just quoted him. Actually, he says in verse 28, Some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Guess what? That's another quote from a Stoic poet. I love this because here's Paul saying, you've got this culture full of idols that is rooted in false gods. And Paul is quoting them. He's not accepting the worldview. He's not saying, oh, we're going to believe what they believe. No, he is quoting them and redeeming their words to be used for the gospel. This is where he's looking and saying, this is us. This is saying, hey, I'm going to communicate the gospel, so I'm going to quote Taylor Swift or Luke Combs or Kanye. No, probably not Kanye. But it's trying to say, hey, here's the things that people are talking about. I'm going to take this. I'm going to redeem it and connect it and use it as a bridge to the gospel. That's what Paul does. He says in verse 29, your own poets acknowledge that as God's creation, we ought not to think the divine being, the true God, being something like silver or stone or an image formed by art and by the imagination of men. He says, just logic. If we understand God is a creator, if we understand that God is who he says he is, it doesn't make for sense for us to create an image of him. He's a creator. He can't fit into the images that we make. He's bigger and greater than that. Paul's walking down this line to say, listen, you believe these idols are going to solve you, but let me tell you about the God who is greater than that. He's he's greater than these images we create. He's so much greater than that. And the fourth thing is he has this gospel conversation. He's going to simply share the gospel, proclaim Jesus, and invite a response. He says in verse 30, there are times of ignorance that God has overlooked, but now he demands men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by one man. And of this, he has given us assurance. This word means proof. He has given us proof by raising him from the dead. Paul says, this unknown God, he came to the earth. He came to the earth. He lived among us. He revealed to us God's way. And not only that, but he suffered in our place. He went to the cross and died for us. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave proving that he is God, proving that he has conquered sin and Satan and death and hell. 
He says, let me tell you, this is, this is what he's done for you. And in the conversation, everything is fine until Jesus talks about the resurrection. At the resurrection, the resurrection demands a response. And we can just believe ideas, but when someone comes to the point where they rise from the grave, we have to make a decision. And Paul says, you've got to make a decision about this Jesus who rose from the grave. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he actually Lord? And what happens? Same thing when we proclaim the gospel. Verse 32, it says, some mocked him. Others wanted to hear more. And some believed. That's what happens when we share the gospel. Some people will mock us. Oh, you put your trust in God, you must be weak. Others are going to say, man, I want to hear more about this. Tell me more, I'm going to learn. And some are going to say, yeah, I'm going to believe. I'm going to put my faith in that God because I see and believe what he's doing in your life. Again, we talk about the church being a movement. That's our desire. We want to be a movement that impacts our culture, our city, the people around us. Movements are around, center around a message. And our message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this increasingly secular culture, man, here, here's what this message is teaching us. That we've got to learn to study the culture, to look for bridges, to contextualize the gospel to meeting people's needs, questions, and concerns. We've got to connect the gospel to where people are, the questions they're asking, to the concerns they have, to the needs they have. Recognizing, hey, the message doesn't change. We've had the same message for 2,000 years, that Jesus died in our place to forgive us, to redeem us. This message has not changed. But as culture changes, we have to get better at how we share that message, to draw people into the truth of God, of his word, and who he is. I got just two little points of application. Number one, do we love others enough to have gospel conversations with them? Again, I, I, I love this because Paul goes into Athens and he looks around and sees all these idols and it says he was provoked. He was provoked not to judge them. He was provoked to do something about it. See, what happens oftentimes in Christian circles is when we look at the culture, we have two extreme responses. One response that we Christians have is the culture is evil. The culture is sinful. They, 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 it's going to lead us to places we shouldn't go, so we reject the culture. Oh, I don't want anything to do with them. I'm going to separate myself where it feels nice and safe and comfortable, where I don't have to be tempted to go in these dark places. That's one response to the culture. The other response that we Christians sometimes have is we, we, we're like, oh, I'm going to assimilate to the culture. I'm going to just go and be like them and do like them, and, and there's going to be no difference between us and them. Paul didn't reject the culture, and neither did he assimilate into the culture. No, his heart was provoked, which means he had compassion on the people. He's saying, listen, I see these people. They've given their lives to statues that can't solve anything in their life. His heart is broken for them. They're pursuing things that will never satisfy them, will never give them freedom and peace. And that compassion compels him to action, compels him to say, I love you enough that I'm going to have a gospel conversation. 
because I don't want you to give your life believing false hopes. I want you to know the truth of who God is and what he's done for you. Again, today, we don't got statues of Artemis and Cloacina. Those are pretty crappy idols. See what I did there? But our culture has pretty crappy idols today, right? Our idols are sex and money and fame and power and beauty and your true self and entertainment, religion, finding yourself. We have all these idols that our world is pursuing. When you look at that, does it break your heart? To see people running in the wrong direction. When's the last time you had a gospel conversation with somebody? You told them about Jesus, about how Jesus loves them, how Jesus longs for a relationship with them, how Jesus will save them. When's the last time you had that conversation? When's the last time you sent a text message to a friend, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus? When's the last time in your own house you had a gospel conversation with someone around you, with your family? You see them living for idols, things that will never satisfy them. Do you love those people enough to do something about it? To have a gospel conversation? Second question I have for you this morning is, are you actually prepared to have a gospel conversation? Are you confident enough in knowing the gospel to share it with somebody else? Again, like we can make the gospel difficult, but it's really pretty simple. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to the earth, who went to the cross, who suffered in our place, who died for our sin and rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death and hell. And if we place our faith in him, we can be saved and redeemed and have life, not just life, but life abundant. Are we confident enough to share that message? Do we believe that message is the key that makes all the difference in life? Do you believe that? Because I tell you what, I go back to when I was that young Christian 20-some years ago. Man, I was so excited to tell people because of what God had done in my heart and my life. Maybe some of us, we need to say, God, would you renew the joy of my salvation? that I'd be that excited again to tell others about it. Listen, if you're there and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm prepared to do this. Listen, some of us need to spend some time studying. Studying the gospel. Reading the scriptures. Asking questions. Reading books. I want to understand these things so I can communicate them to others. I'd recommend uh, a book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. The book I'm rereading right now. It shows how God came to save both the sinner and the saint. Are you prepared to contextualize the gospel? You know, this is why we invited John Stewart to come to Restoration Church. Because I want to help us to have conversations to figure out how do we contextualize the gospel into our culture? Where we are today, 2023, heading into 2024. If we're going to be a movement, we've got to be students. We've got to pay attention to the culture around us, <clears throat> listening and watching, asking questions, <clears throat> excuse me, 
listening and watching and asking questions of what's happening around us. Let me clarify this. It's not an excuse for you to watch dirty movies. That's not what we're talking about here. But music and media, politics, movies, our culture is addressing the felt needs, the questions we're asking, the concerns we have. Are we students enough to listen to that, to say, let me figure out how to bridge the gospel to that? And let me just close with this. Can I tell you this morning about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You know, I I think about that 20 years ago. Sitting in the fact that God chose me. God looked up over all the world and saw this broken little boy. And God chose to set his grace and his favor on me. God looked at this little boy that struggled being loved and God said, you are beloved. You are mine. And God said, listen, you are kept by me. No one will abandon you because I am with you to the end of the age. God met the deepest longings of my soul. That eternity that is written in every human heart. He met for me. He gave me meaning for my life. He healed my deepest hurts and gave me joy and peace. And I'll tell you what, I don't know what brought you here today, but I want you to know that God. The book of John says, those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's my invitation for you this morning. Would you receive him and believe in what he's done for you? And place your faith in him so you can experience his salvation. This calling, this loving, this acceptance, this praying.